This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Mark Ravina, professor in the Department of History at Emory University. Dr. Ravina is the author of To Stand with the Nations of the World, Japan's Meiji Restoration in World History, published by Oxford University Press in 2017. Dr. Ravina, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. You recently published this book, To Stand with the Nations of the World, Japan's Meiji Restoration and World History. And you know, this being the Meiji at 150 podcast, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the Meiji Restoration and, and particularly the, this 150th anniversary. And so I was curious, what was some of the impetus behind writing the book? Was it purely because of the timing of, of the 150th or was this more of an opportunity to reconsider and revisit some of those narratives? It was to some degree both. I had been thinking, my first book was, of course, on the domains, on the construction of the pre-mage of the Tokugawa polity. That led me to be fascinated in what follows. And of course, I wrote a biography of Saigo Takamori, my second book. And he's this incredible transitional figure who actually helps overthrow the Tokugawa regime, in some ways helps dissolve his own domain, but really never comes to terms with the Meiji state. So this was sort of the logical, in sequence, the logical next thing to write, simply explaining to myself the progression of Japanese political history. But of course, the sesquicentennial didn't quite sneak up on us. I know it's like, oh, it's going to be 150, 2018. So I did the math, and that was a driver to complete it early last year. But that said, you do kind of take to task a lot of these received narratives that we have of the Meiji Restoration. And particularly, you start off by talking about some of these myths of the modernization, and especially Ito Hirobumi kind of elaborating and exaggerating some of these breaks between the past and the Meiji present. One thing that struck me in writing about this was the degree to which in both Japanese language scholarship and American language scholarship, political history has not been the place where super exciting things have been going on for a while. And so returning to it, uh, it was rebutting a received narrative, but those were really old received narratives. We were really sort of stuck in political history, really with sort of modernization theory, you know, Western impact Japanese response, really, really old paradigms that you almost had to sort of take out of the closet, you know, stand up to knock them down again. And I do rebut them, but they are really old. And what was exciting in some ways is going at it with fresh eyes and taking some of the insights of all of the newer forms of history, social history, the linguistic turn, gender histories, and and seeing what happens once we're informed by those. What does sort of old school political history look like? What does old school diplomatic history look like? So that, to some degree, is what I was hoping to do, trying to do. And on that note, you're right. I mean, the last book specifically on the Restoration probably was William Beasley's book in 1972, right? Exactly. Exactly. So in a lot of ways, I was, and I kept thinking I was missing something. And it turned out, actually, in English and in Japanese, there hasn't been sort of a big paradigm. And it made it to some degree rather easy and rather challenging. And you mentioned bringing up some of these new frameworks, gender and other ways of looking at the restoration. But one of the things that you emphasize quite a lot in in the book is the restoration of antiquity of Japan. In fact, one of the chapters is called a newly ancient Japan, which has a a very nice turn of phrase there. Could you talk a little bit about what you mean by that and, and how this antiquity is brought back during the restoration? One thing that struck me in doing my reading was the degree to which that was treated, the idea of it being a a restoration, and of course in Japanese, ishin, and the degree to which that was just 
evoked or, or noted, but not really engaged. And of course, it was extremely important to the participants. Many of them really believed that what they were doing was recreating some form of ancient Japan. And, and if you were a true nativist, you believed to some degree that you were going to recreate a Japan that was before Chinese influence, and the state would almost dissolve, and people would you know, connect to the emperor through their local shrines. And there's other ways in which there's a sense that the Nara and Heian institutions will be revived. But there's a sense of reviving ancient greatness that was really important to the participants themselves, and we somehow lost it. And as I began to explore this, rather than becoming something that was uniquely Japanese, it became something that was connected Japan to other places, the way in which the sense of a recovery of an ancient past is very important in modern history. And I, I sort of cherry-picked these, but you know, Italian nationalists would talk about themselves as reviving Rome. Modern German nationalists would talk about Barbarossa. You're looking back to the Middle Ages. American revolutionaries explicitly looked back to the idea that they were reviving great ancient Athenian and Roman democracy. So this idea of recovering the ancient and making that part of modern revolutions was absolutely not unique to Japan. It's just no one had taken it seriously and made the transnational connection. So you're absolutely right. It was sort of sitting there and, and the sort of odd thing that I wondered why no one else had looked at it. Although although Takagi Hiroshi's work dovetailed brilliantly with mine, I, I learned a lot, a lot from him. The invention of tradition, that trope has made its way to Japan. So there's a lot of newer, exciting work in Japan that I was I was able to build on. And in the early Meiji period, you're absolutely right. You know, there is this kind of donning of these robes of the past, you could say. The historical patina that's brought up to legitimize the present, bringing back the Dajokan system from the Heian period. Everybody wearing the robes. At one point, they even all kind of adopted these court names, Fujiwara, whatever, and they would sign their documents using these adopted court names. But at the same time, there is this charter oath that is put out in 1868, where it very explicitly says, we must tear asunder the evil customs of the past. So there does seem to be this kind of paradoxical contradiction, isn't there? Yes, but of course, the past in that case is basically the Tokugawa. And, you know, what's striking is even, you know, the, the, the last documents, you know, Tokugawa Yoshinobu had this amazing ability to resign himself into more power, which drove the, the people who were trying to force him from power crazy, because resign his title as shogun and say, but of course, I'm holding on to the title of Kampaku. So he himself was grabbing onto these ancient Heian institutions and using those to rebuild his own power. So what's striking is even in its last days, the Tokugawa regime gave up on the Tokugawa regime and said, yes, yes, we, you know, we went astray. We went astray from both ancient Japanese tradition and even early Tokugawa tradition, and we need to go back before. So it's a very specific past that's being renounced. And it's sort of the more immediate past that's being renounced in favor of an ancient past. And you write about how this wasn't really the first time that Japan had participated in a kind of globalizing project or had even undertaken its own globalization project. But this is the place in which I'm actually most satisfied with the work because you publish a book and I'm immediately, I'm finding things now where I say, oh, I would have done that differently even you know, now, 12 months later, I understand that better. The place in which I'm not doing that yet, but I'm really satisfied is drawing that connection between two periods of incredibly radical reform that are generated by encroaching empires. And of course, the first one is what prompts the Nara and Han reforms, which is the Sui and the Tang dynasty back in the 
six and seven hundreds, where ancient Japan faces this unbelievably powerful empire and decides, in essence, that you have to fuse local traditions with the best practice of this massive, terrifying empire. And what's so important about that is, is not only are people in the Meiji period explicitly citing it and saying, we can do this again, but it allows us to sort of recognize the importance of Western imperialism without falling into sort of an east-west dichotomy. And the old paradigm was, and Cohen pointed this out brilliantly, Paul Cohen in History in Three Keys, was in, in the search for modern China. He says the, the problem with the Western impact Chinese response paradigm is China's sort of napping. Japan is napping. It needs to be awakened by the West. And so we sort of push against that. But a really powerful way to, to push against that is to note that the West is not the first empire to shake things up in Japan. The, Japan was shaken up by the Sui and the Tang dynasty. And also to put this still in a broader context, anytime you try and build an empire in Japan, you undertake radical, radical political, social, and economic reform. So Hideyoshi, when he wanted to build an empire, transformed Japanese society. And so in that case, the Meiji period doesn't become this singular thing that has to be put in terms of modernity, a term I don't especially like, uh, but can be put in this broader, multiple millennia long sense of cycles and sense of what do you do when you're threatened by an empire or what do you do when you want to build an empire? And so you're almost describing multiple cases of this Nayu Daikon paradigm, right? This internal trouble, mm. foreign threat paradigm that leads to a type of revolutionary political change in Japan? Exactly. And of course, the exact words Nayu Gaikon are not used in the 6 700s, but it is the exact same sense in the case of the Sengoku period and Hideyoshi, the reunification of Japan. There is no explicit Gaikon. There's no foreign threat. But there is this sense that Japan is powerfully engaged in an international order and it needs to stake out its place, or at least that's Hideyoshi's ambition to stake out a place for Japan in the international order. And we get a radical transformation of Japan as well. To piggyback on your phrase Gaikan, whether you want to be a Gaikan, whether like Hideyoshi you want to take over the world or whether someone else wants to take over the world and you don't want to be part of their empire. We get these similar forces of radical transformation, of centralization, of new ways of mobilizing people and resources. And I found those parallels over multiple millennia to be really striking. In fact, in my own history class, I have to kind of cover a lot of Japanese history in my class. And, and so I'm not able to give pre-modern Japanese history as much time as I would like to, but in, in trying to construct a narrative, kind of come up with a meta-narrative that would be easy for the students to follow along, it was that kind of cyclical Nayu Gaikon narrative that I came to, just like you were talking about, you go all the way back to the Sui and Tong. And then maybe we could talk about, say, maybe the Mongols as one earlier form of foreign threat. And then what about Christianity in the 16th century? Is this another type of foreign threat that leads to a political revolution? That's actually a very good point. And of course, the response to Christianity by the Tokugawa is to stop it before it stops you or before it destroys your regime. No one, because of how his dynasty collapses, no one explicitly cites Hideyoshi in the Meiji period. 
But what I do find in Tokugawa reformers is they look to the very early Tokugawa period before isolation and say, again, we can be inspired by that. We can be inspired by a Tokugawa regime that was authorizing shipping to Southeast Asia and was seeking to extend its power internationally. So what struck me was was the way in which, as you've noted, we try in a classroom setting where we're covering multiple millennia, we try and formulate it this way, noting these cycles. And what I found so exciting is finding the historical actors themselves in the late Tokugawa period saying, we're facing a crisis. What do we look at in our own history that will inspire us? And indeed, they look to the early Tokugawa period period of national unification, then before that, Tanada and Heian. So it was that overlap between how do I explain this to myself? How do I explain this to students? And how are the actors explaining it to themselves? That made me genuinely excited and satisfied. And of course, one of these narratives of the Meiji Restoration that you're reconsidering in the book is this idea of the West opening Japan. And and of course, in the historiography in the last 20, 30 years, there's been a lot of work that's really challenged that idea of Japanese isolation. But since we were just talking about Tokugawa's response to Christianity, there is a concerted effort to really block off Japan from Christianity in particular. And so you could see where this idea that from the Western perspective, Japan is cut off, even if there is what, several ships a year coming in from the from the Dutch, and there's several embassies from the Ryukyu Kingdom and Korea, for example. But there is still this kind of seclusion policy, isn't there? I think that's absolutely true, and it's something we still struggle to finesse, because the old story that is just wrong is that over, over the course of the first three shoguns and the first half century of Tokugawa rule, Japan cut itself off from the outside world. And that's just wrong because there was extensive trade, as you note, even if a lot of it was carried by, in fact, virtually all of it was carried by non-Japanese traders, but Japan is still exporting enormous volumes of precious metals into the early 1700s. And of course, the shoguns remained very, very concerned with diplomatic relations with Korea. But at the end of the day, incredibly few people leave Japan from the 1630s until the 1850s, 60s. And in that way, it simply is isolated. Very few foreigners come to Japan and just roam around, and very, very few Japanese leave Japan and re-enter. And so when you compare this to huge numbers of people leaving Europe and moving to the New World, to the Western Hemisphere, it really is a different type of dynamic. And so what we need to do is not fall into the trap of the old Sakoku isolation paradigm, but draw that distinction that this is this is not like all the refugees from 1848 in Germany moving to the U.S. and changing radical politics. It's not like the Irish potato famine, which transforms the United States. And we need to take account of that, that millions of people moving really changes the rest of the world. And that doesn't happen in Japan. And then, as you know, as well, there's a lot of non-state actors who are kind of going back and forth around the East China Sea region in the form of piracy and other types of informal trading networks. And of course, there too, the, that's a major struggle of the Tokugawa. And that's where Rob Hellyer's work is just fantastic. It's sort of recognizing that we can't fully document the pirates, but we know that something's funny going on here from just fragmentary sources, from the way trade seems to move around. And yeah, we do have to acknowledge its continuities. And that's, of course, a great reason 
for Japan in many ways, a motivation for the Tokugawa to withdraw because you can't really control these non-state actors. I mean, when you let a Japanese trader go overseas and if he gets in trouble and a foreign government says he's a pirate, do you really want to extend your power that far and defend him and say, no, he's not a pirate, he has a vermilion seal, he's my trader? Or do you just want to wash your hands of the entire thing because you might lose and you might lose legitimacy because you fail to defend one of your subjects. So that's, for me, one of the key issues. And it makes sort of the Tokugawa withdraw from global politics much more comprehensible. And you mentioned before that you dislike the term modernization. Mm -hmm. And especially, you know, I can tell from our conversation so far, you know, we're talking about all the antiquity that's brought back during the Meiji period. But then there is this introduction of a lot of newer technologies, railways, telegraphs, you know, lighthouses. I don't hate the terms modernization and modernity. In fact, I think they're a great shorthand for the situation in which there seem to be a lot of things that happen at the same time and are connected. Industrialization, use of new technologies, the introduction of capitalism, the rise of new political forms, the rise of interiority and in literature. And I think if you just want to capture all of those in a word or two, modernization, modernity are fine, but I find it sort of a loose, messy bag of stuff. And therefore, as a analytical tool, I really don't like it. I personally get greater insight if I look at the individual components of what we call modernization or modernity. So capitalism, I like. I, I think I got a sense of what capitalism is and how that transforms economic relations and how it transforms law and how it transforms how people treat each other. So if we talk about the introduction of capitalism in 19th century Japan, I feel like we're getting something. I love the idea of the transnational diffusion of the nation state. And what's going on in Meiji Japan is older political forms and attitudes and practices are being reworked to create a Japanese nation state in contrast to a very different type of polity. So I feel like I can get real traction, I can get real insight there. And so I'd much rather talk about capitalism, new technologies, nationalism in the nation state, rather than sort of throw them together in kind of a messy soup and say, ah, it's modernity. So it's a preference. And I was originally going to try and write the book without ever using modernization. And I found it was actually impossible. But I don't use it as sort of a broad analytical term. In the book, I use it only really to mean much better technologies or changing in a way that's closer to the way we do it now. Because I just don't like it as a way of trying to explain things. I use it as a very, very simple adjective. And another one of those narratives that would have been received from older scholarship that I think we're now starting to question is it's not only modernization, but using the term westernization. That is really messy. And for me, what I find fascinating about westernization is the internal anxiety in some of its advocates. So I love to make fun of Niall Ferguson because you shouldn't punch down <laughs> but you're definitely punching up. He's at Harvard. He's at Stanford. But he's a great sort of westernization advocate. And he explicitly says, you know, Singapore is great because Lee Kuan Yew basically spoke English rather than Chinese. I mean, he's absolutely vocal about this. And he says the major restoration was Japan copying the West, which is why it was a success. So it's a wonderful recap of sort of the oldest 50, 80 year old versions of the major restoration as westernization. And what I find marvelous about Niall Ferguson is how 
he lays perhaps unintentionally his anxieties on the line because he doesn't know what to do with the success of, for example, 21st century Chinese capitalism, because it has to, on the one hand, be copying the West or it can't be successful. On the other hand, it's clearly not fully Western, so they must be cheating. And it lays out all this tremendous, tremendous anxiety, which is what happens when Western forms are transformed other places. So to flesh this out a little more, you could arguably celebrate that phenomena that are originally Western, like the Industrial Revolution, when they go global, that's sort of a triumph of Western forms. But for someone like Niall Ferguson, that can't be right because they're inherently Western. So for any other civilization to master them almost denudes them of their Westernness and it's stealing and cheating. And he almost uses those words in some places. China and Japan are, he almost accuses of software piracy, that they have stolen these Western ideas without proper acknowledgement. So what I love about Niall Ferguson's account of Westernization is how it underlies this confusion that you, to some degree, don't want these ideas to go global. You want to hold on to them tightly and make them Western. On the other hand, you want them to go global, but only in a system of Western domination. So the idea, you know, that Japan and China could make great cars and take the internal combustion engine and do it better than it was ever done in Europe or the West could be a form of celebration. But if you're a Westernization advocate, it's a source of endless agony and frustration. So they save me a lot because I can just say, look at those hysterical internal contradictions. And that's why that idea doesn't work. Earlier, we were placing the Meiji Restoration longitudinally within this long array of Japanese history. But if we think about the Meiji Restoration more latitudinally and, and looking at some of the things that are happening around the world in the 19th century, it, do we see some links between these synchronous events? Or is the Meiji Restoration another one of these 19th century revolutions around the world? You hit on one of the things where I feel like I'm just coming to understand some of the things I point to in the book. And one thing I'm playing with now is noting some of the things we hold up as the key points of the major restoration. So the abolition of old class distinctions, the abolition in effect of serfdom, a new emphasis on vernacular literature, the cultural commonalities of the Japanese people, in contrast to a celebration, for example, of classical Chinese literature making Japan culturally similar to the rest of East Asia. An emphasis on basic literacy across the realm. And you can come up with this checklist, and I did this, and if I simply took out vernacular Japanese and Chinese and replaced them with Hungarian and Latin, I was talking about the Hungarian Revolution of 1848 rather than the Japanese Revolution of 1868. They're astonishingly similar. There is almost a template of what a 19th century nationalist revolution looks like, and the major restoration fits in there. And so then the question is, how and why? And one simple answer is the leaders of the major restoration were looking at what was working in the world and they didn't describe it as Western. They simply described it as the new legitimate form of polity. They didn't simply describe it as the rising political form. And that's what you do. And the idea that everyone in the world is exploring this new model at the same time makes it 
much easier to break this out of an East-West paradigm. I mean, if Japan and Hungary and Latin American republics are all scrambling at the same time to work out the same model, what we have is simultaneous global change rather than this old Japan catching up paradigm. That's a great point, because another of these received narratives is that Japan and usually paired with Germany, are, are identified as the late developers. But like you were saying, you know, you start lining these things up, it could be the Hungarian Revolution, it could be Japan, it could be the Italian Risorgimento. Even, you know, the, the abolition of slavery in the U.S. is 1863, right? In, in Japan, it's 1871. So, I mean, should we revisit that narrative of Japan as a late developer? Well, there's two points here. One is that late developer narrative basically means after England. And sometimes after England and a little bit after France, but it basically means after England. And there, I think the gradual disappearance of a much older Anglo-centrism in which you know, basically everything modern had to go back to the moldboard plow and the enclosure movement and any other way of explaining things outside of the exact English experience was somehow deviant. I think that's dying, but we haven't fully taken account of the fact that Japan is so much in the mix of things, and some of your examples are, are fabulous. Here's another one where I found the period sources were speaking directly to my own questions, which is the Meiji leaders themselves don't think they're desperately behind. They're revolutionaries, and revolutionaries, you don't overthrow a government unless you think you can solve the problem fast. If you think the problem takes years to solve, you work within the old system. So these people are in a hurry, and they're absolutely convinced that they can remake Japan within years. And one thing I find strange but pervasive in our discussion of Meiji Japan is how much we look at it backwards. So if, for example, you look at the canonical works of Meiji literature, it will be defined generally as the later works of Soseki which are these late Meiji works, looking back with sort of sorrow on unrealized potential. So at the risk of a biological metaphor, we, we look at the Meiji state not in its vibrant youth, but we look at it sort of in its late Soseki, Shimazaki Toson midlife crisis. And therefore, we miss sort of the urgency of the original revolution and the confidence that Japan is having a revolution and can just jump right in. We're not behind. We're at the cutting edge. Everyone else is doing this at the same time, so it's not that hard to steal a march on someone. And that's so much part of the ethos of the early Meiji state. With this being the 150th anniversary, and we talked about this being an opportunity to revisit some of those narratives and reconsider those narratives. But if we think about it with 150 years of hindsight, would you say that there are certain lessons that we can draw from the Meiji Restoration for the world today? One thing I'm working through is the degree to which our current moment feels in some ways very 19th century, early 20th century. And this is not unique to me, but I don't remember who I'm quoting, but there's a way in which World War I now feels more relevant than World War II with the collapse of the bipolar world. And one way in which that's, that's very vivid to me is we're, we're living through right now sort of the paradoxes of the, of the nation state which is, you know, on the one hand, it celebrates universal values, but on the other hand, it's very, very particularistic. So the idea of individual emancipation is very, very much a part of nationalist discourse everywhere. And to some degree, this is even captured, for example, in 
you know, the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. But on the other hand, nation states are very particularistic. So if you're in the wrong nation state, you know, do you have minority rights? And if minorities have equal rights, then why have a nation state to begin with? So to get to sort of an immediate example, if a Somali refugee is as comfortable in Sweden as he is in Somalia, then why have a Sweden in a Somalia? So I see actually the major restoration as being part of the creation of this paradox. Because on the one hand, it's a nation state like any other in the world, and it is officially in the discourse admitted to the family of nations. So it's recognized just like a world power, on the other hand, that demands a certain particularism. You have to insist that Japan is unique in the world. Otherwise, why have a Japanese nation state? And these are the paradoxes I think we work out now in world politics and in, in domestic politics with things like a refugee crisis. So there's a way in which the major restoration feels very, very immediate. What is the legacy of the major restoration from modern Japan? I think what's difficult and what's sort of really parallel to our own moment in U.S. history is we need to recognize both, for example, in American history, that the founding fathers, to use the cliche term, both gave us a vision of emancipation and democracy and a fabulous civil society, and they were slave owners. So while they were writing in glowing terms about the glories of human rights, they were brutally denying it to people in their own possession on a daily basis. So we have to work through both the promise and the burden of these foundations of the state. And you can see that in the major restoration as well. I have no doubt that the success of post-war Japanese democracy is rooted in the Jiuminken Undo. I have no doubt. But at the same time, we get sort of the uglier forms of Japanese nationalism and a need to build an empire to glorify Japanese uniqueness that also can be traced to the major restoration and certain authoritarian forms that are also built in there from the early years of the Meiji period. So the idea of looking back on this and honestly struggling with the potential and the burden of it, something very 21st century and something common to honest history across the 21st century. Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website. Meiji at 150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.